evidence and answers. Our currency has this saying. Our coins have it too. But do we really live up to that standard in God we trust? You're listening to Evidence and Answers with your host, Pat Zucran. Pat is a popular teacher, speaker, and author in the area of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. Each week, Pat and his friends provide reasons for faith and hope in Christ. This time, as we continue on with part two of a message Kirby Anderson started the last time we were together, entitled One Nation Under God, taken from our recent Hawaii Apologetics Conference. Each year, Pat hosts this conference, which features some of the premier Christian scholars and apologists from around the nation. Our theme this year was, Can We Be Good Without God?, and featured keynote speakers, Dr. Richard Land and Kirby Anderson. Let's conclude this encouraging message with Kirby now. The New Testament, Acts 5.29, where they, the disciples say, we will obey God rather than men when they were told not to witness. So his reprinted sermon, you know, they didn't have CDs back in those days. So when you would deliver a sermon, then they would reprint the sermon, and those reprinted sermons would be then scattered everywhere. Recently, I had a chance to preach in the church where Jonathan Edwards attended when he was a student at Yale. And they asked me to do the same thing that church has been doing for more than 200 years, and that is to write out my sermon. And after it was done, those reprinted sermons were available in the 21st century, just like they were in the 18th century. And so many people were very profoundly influenced by Jonathan Mayhew. Another one would be Dr. Samuel Cooper, minister of Battle Street Church. Some of the individuals in his church actually fought at Bunker Hill. Some of them defended at Lexington and Concord. Some of them were involved in all sorts of different activities, and some, because they were ready so quickly, came to be known as what? The Minutemen. I thought I'd pick one more, because those were all New England. Let's pick one from Virginia. I don't know if anybody's ever been to uh, Williamsburg, Virginia, but here, this will be a story of uh, Reverend John Peter Gabriel Muhlenberg. He was a pastor, a Lutheran pastor in Woodstock, Virginia. But in addition to being a pastor, he also served in the House of Burgesses. And if you've ever been to Williamsburg, maybe they let you come and sit where he actually sat. And while he was there, he actually heard a report of the fact that the British troops had fired on Americans and it was obvious that we were headed towards Revolutionary War. Well, then he decided to come back to his own church, and so he comes from kind of the southeastern part of Virginia, rides horseback up to Woodstock, which is up in kind of the northwestern part, gets there Saturday night, and Sunday morning then stands before the congregation, and he preaches on Ecclesiastes 3. And when he gets to that part where it says there's a time for war and a time for peace, he begins to now tell the story of, indeed, the fact that the British have fired on the Americans and we are headed to war. And now he then, at the end, this is a painting of that, removes his vestments, and underneath it you can see that he is a soldier in the Revolutionary War. And so he stands at the back of the church and calls for the men in the church to join him, and 300 men in his church join him, and now they fight in the American Revolution. It's an interesting story, but not only does John Peter Gabriel Muhlenberg get involved in this, but he has a brother by the name of Frederick Augustus Muhlenberg, who is a Lutheran pastor in Manhattan Island. And we have the correspondence between them and the kind of conversations we have today they have there as well. 
because Frederick Augustus Muhlenberg says, how dare you? You're a pastor. You're a man of the cloth. You should not be involved politically. And now you're actually joining in the Revolutionary War? Well, John Peter Gabriel Muhlenberg writes back to Herbert Augustus Muhlenberg, and he says, because I stand for liberty, you're able to stand in your pulpit. Well, that didn't last very long, because all of a sudden the British warships come in, George Washington barely escapes into uh, New Jersey, and all of a sudden he's without a church and without a home, and now he begins to think through a little bit more. Well, nevertheless, John Peter Gabriel Muhlenberg becomes a major general in the Continental Army, and if any of you have ever been to Washington, D.C., you will know that they have a statue of John Peter Gabriel Muhlenberg. But interestingly enough, after the Revolutionary War, not only is John Peter Gabriel Muhlenberg serving Congress, but his brother, Frederick Augustus Muhlenberg, serves as well. And interestingly enough, if you ever get a tour of the Capitol, ask if you can go into the speaker's chamber, and as you come in, turn around, and you will see this large portrait of Frederick Augustus Muhlenberg. He became the first speaker of the house. Or if you don't do that, go over to the National Archives, and you will see that there is a copy of the Constitution, a copy of the Declaration, the Constitution, and also a copy of the Bill of Rights. And if you look at the Bill of Rights, it's signed by two people, John Adams and Frederick Augustus Muhlenberg, who originally thought it was wrong for pastors to get involved politically and later became the first Speaker of the House in the United States. During this time, of course, we also see that John Adams said that the Philadelphia ministers thunder and lighten every Sabbath against George III's despotism. Thomas Jefferson said pulpit oratory ran like a shock of electricity through the whole colony. Well, let's look at a couple more real quickly before we wind it down. The eighth thing that every Christian should know is that biblical Christianity was the driving force behind the key leaders of the American Revolution. I think we already sort of saw that, but let's go back and mention someone, Samuel Adams. Sadly, today, when I say Samuel Adams, almost everybody thinks of what? The beer. Okay. There's a little more to this, and let's see if we can try to educate us beyond maybe beer. And that is, he'd been telling his countrymen for years that America needed to take its stand against tyranny. And he said he regarded individual freedom as the law of the Creator and the Christian right documented in the New Testament. And so we see that there was really a strong emphasis on the fact that these ideas of rights and liberty came from biblical principles. And we're going to be talking about this all through the conference, and I'll talk about more of that tomorrow afternoon in terms of the verses that were important in all of that. But when they indeed signed the Declaration of Independence, and he heard about that, he said, we have this day restored the sovereign to whom all men ought to be obedient. He reigns in heaven and from the rising to the setting of the sun, let his kingdom come. Isn't that amazing? Two more real quickly, and that's number nine. The ninth thing that every Christian should know would be that Christianity played a significant role in the development of our nation's birth certificate, the Declaration of Independence. And I think it's important to talk about what's the difference between the Declaration and the Constitution. Well, I would suggest that the Declaration really is giving you the why of American government. Why did we feel that we should disconnect from Britain and thus become what? A new nation. So it tells you, in a sense, the why, the justification for the founding of America. The Constitution, in some respects, tells you the how of American government. And I'll talk more about that tomorrow afternoon when we get into it in a little bit more detail. 
But I think it is interesting because when you just look at the declaration alone, I think you get a pretty good idea of how some of these Christian ideas were very important in the founding of this country. If you look at the Declaration of Independence, you're going to see there are four different places where God is mentioned either explicitly or implicitly. The first is the idea of the laws of nature and nature's God. I'll have more to say about that in just a minute. But this is the idea that laws of nature are certainly sort of natural law, the things that we know intuitively that are right or wrong. There is a great book that has come out that by a professor by the name of Budyshevsky. Hard name to say, harder to spell, but it's the things you, you can't not know. Bad English, but good idea. That is certain things we just know intuitively, what you might call natural law. When somebody says, hey, that's not right, that's not fair, you promised. That's kind of natural law. But then the idea of nature's God also is the idea that we also have the revelation. So first of all, we see God in that respect. Then we also see something else, that we are endowed by what? Our creator, with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So where do we get our rights? It's not government gives us rights. Government recognizes the rights that are there because we are endowed by our creator. So those two places. Number three, we also see that they were appealing to the supreme judge of the world. After all, they were about now to engage in what effectively was civil disobedience, let's go with the right term, treason. And so they wanted to make sure that they had the right attitude before God, the supreme judge of the world. And finally, they also called for the protection of divine providence. After all, this ragtag bunch of regulars and militia were now going to go against the greatest military power of the 18th century. And they had to pray for God's protection in that regard. Well, if you look at that, the Declaration of Independence, at least implicitly or explicitly, mentions God what? Four times. Do you agree? Now, some of my civil libertarian friends right now make the case that, you know, you can't post the Ten Commandments because it mentions God. But a typical Ten Commandments, if you look at it, really only mentions God once. Declaration of Independence, which we post in a lot of schools, mentions God what? four times. Now don't tell them because I want to pull those down too, but the point I'm making is, is recognize how really in a biblical sense those ideas were in the Declaration of Independence. Let's come back to that idea of the laws of nature. So that may be unfamiliar, and a lot of that goes back to the writing of a man by the name of John Locke. And he wrote the two treatises of government, and he explained that the law of nature is God's general revelation that he writes on our hearts. You know, we have a sense of right and wrong. And then also, of course, he spoke about the law of God as God's eternal moral law, which is revealed and published in Scripture. And so even here, you see that as Thomas Jefferson was quoting from John Locke, and believe me, if you've ever been, I doubt anybody reads it for pleasure, but if anybody ever was forced to read these, as those of us that uh, have degrees in uh, American political government, you will be struck by the number of Bible quotes that are in John Locke's treatise of government that were then quoted as a justification for the Declaration of Independence. 
If you've ever been to Williamsburg, one of the homes they take you through is the home of George Mason. And George Mason said, interestingly enough, that uh, these were ideas that were governed by God. And a lot of people said, where did these ideas come from that are mentioned in the Declaration? Because Thomas Jefferson said, and of course he did this with the help of John Adams, and Roger Sherman, and Benjamin Franklin, and others, uh, that these were not new ideas. Well, the Virginia Declaration of Rights says this, and see if this sounds familiar that all men are by nature equally free and independent and have certain inherent rights, namely the enjoyment of life and liberty and pursuing and obtaining happiness and safety. Does that sound familiar at all? And that's where some of those ideas come from as well. Again, one more quote from Paul Johnson in his book, The History of the American People. He says, there is no question that the Declaration of Independence was to those who signed it a religious as well as secular act and that the Revolutionary War had the approbation of divine providence. Well, the tenth and final one, we're coming to our end here, is that the Constitution relates very much also to the Bible, that the biblical understanding of human sinfulness was the guiding principle behind the United States Constitution. And what I think we see here is some very interesting things. Where did these ideas come from? If you studied American political theory as I have, and also modern political theory and classical political theory, you very quickly come up with a very interesting question. Because before the Constitution, you don't have all sorts of ideas that seem to spring up almost instantaneously in the Constitution. And we still have the same Constitution. Italy's gone through a half a dozen in that time. And Look how many different governments Germany has gone through and on and on. But where did these ideas come from? This book is just one of many that talks about the origins of American constitutionalism. When I was at Georgetown University, my major professor, working with a professor at Louisiana State, LSU, as well as a professor at University of Houston, began to go through and analyze all the writings during the founding era. The writings of Alexander Hamilton, John Jay, James Madison, Thomas Jefferson, Benjamin Franklin, all sorts of individuals that were writing during this time, Benjamin Rush, George Washington himself, and they came up with all the writings of the founding era. And then they asked, where were these quotes coming from? Who were the individuals and what were the sources that gave us the U.S. Constitution? And they counted about 3,000 different quotes and citations. And they concluded after looking at those 3,000 that the one document quoted most often was, wait for it, the Bible. It was quoted 34% of the time. Locke, Montesquieu, others got mentioned. But the one document that was quoted most often as they would write to one another, as they would write documents, as they would pull things together was what? The Bible. But that's not the whole story. Matter of fact, recently when I did this on a radio program, somebody wrote to me and said, yeah, but you didn't mention the fact, which I'm going to mention right now, and I did mention, you just didn't wait for the next day of the radio program, that these quotes, where these quotes came from. Because it wasn't just that they were quoting from the Bible. Three-fourths of those quotes from the Bible came from the sermons of the era. Remember I said during the 18th century, as you would preach a sermon, they would then write it out and reprint it. And so as these individuals were establishing the Constitution, they were quoting from the sermons of that day. In other words, the pastors and preachers of the 18th century, their sermons and their sermon texts ended up in our U.S. Constitution. Is that amazing to you? 
Try this as a thought experiment. Let's imagine today that we decide to write a new constitution. I've had some people say, we're not using this one, so maybe we need a new one, okay? Let's say we write a new constitution. Do you think the sermons of pastors in America would end up in that constitution? I think we know the answer to that now, don't we? For two reasons. Number one, the political class doesn't care what pastors have to say. But number two, and I think Pat alluded to that, sometimes pastors aren't addressing some of these important issues. But in the 18th century, they were talking about rights and justice and liberty. They were talking about the structure of government. They were talking about economic fairness, all sorts of issues from the pulpits of America. It's, I think, also helpful to recognize the influence of a few people. And since I've got a Princeton man here, I've got to at least mention John Witherspoon. John Witherspoon was known as the Princeton. That time was the College of New Jersey, but we today call it Princeton. Now, interestingly enough, he had a profound influence on the individuals that gave us our Constitution. He taught James Madison, who is known as the architect of the Constitution, 77 members of Congress, three Supreme Court justices. So not only was he a pastor and a president of a school, he also was a signer of the Declaration of Independence. But a lot of people say that one of the more significant, significant aspects of his life was the fact that he preached a very important sermon and it was a sermon entitled Dominion of Providence Over the Affairs of Men. And when, notice when he wrote that and actually preached it, 1776. Because up until that time, there were some still wondering whether or not it would be appropriate to declare independence from England. And he talks about the fact that sometimes providence gives us the world that we have. And so he also, as a pastor, as a preacher, as a president, and a sign of a declaration, talked about those important ideas. John Eidsmo said that one thing is certain, the Christian religion, and particular Reverend Witherspoon's Calvinism, which emphasized the fallen nature of man, influenced Madison's view of law and government. Why do we have checks and balances? Because we believe that human beings are sinful. Don't just look at me. You're sinful too, okay? All of sin and fall short of the glory of God, right? And so we don't trust any one individual too much with too much power. That's why we have the idea of checks and balances. If you don't think so, let me mention this. Probably the best understanding that a person can have of the United States Constitution is to read the Federalist Papers. What are those? Well, it turns out that these were a series of perhaps the most famous newspaper columns ever written. They were written by three individuals, and they were written basically as an attempt to convince the state of New York to ratify the Constitution. They're written, first of all, by James Madison. Who's James Madison? Well, I just mentioned he was the architect of the Constitution. We have his notes on the Constitutional Convention. He was married, as you might know, to Dolly Madison and was a president of the United States. Alexander Hamilton, who was he? Well, he was not only a man who served at the pleasure of George Washington in the Revolutionary War, he was Secretary of Treasury, a lot of people think he might have been able to be president, but he wasn't born in this country. And if you're not born in this country, then you can't be president. At least so I hear, but that's another story for another day. And besides, he was assassinated by Aaron Burr in a duel, and that was the end of that. So, and then the other one is John Jay. And you might say, okay, I really don't know who John Jay is. When he wrote the Federalist Papers at that time, he was the vice president of the American Bible Society, interestingly enough. Later, he became the president of the American Bible Society and then became the first chief justice of the United States. 
Now think about that for a minute. The president of the American Bible Society became the first chief justice of the Supreme Court. <laughs> I hear an amen there. Now just imagine if President Obama has another appointee. You know, maybe someone steps down, Ruth Bader Ginsburg or something like that. And let's just say at a moment of maybe confusion decides to get the current president, the American Bible Society, who, by the way, is a very good friend of mine, and appoint him to the Supreme Court. First of all, none of you can believe that would happen. But even imagine another president were to do that. Could you imagine the firestorm that would exist in America if any president of the American Bible Society, even 20 years from now, became a Supreme Court justice? And that tells you a lot about where we've come. But it also shows you where we were at that time because we recognize that though a law degree would be helpful, a man or a woman with good, sound, biblical judgment is what we need to make decisions about our law. Tomorrow when I talk about how to vote and how to make choices about candidates and what we can do, that's certainly a very important principle. Here's one more, very quickly. Amy Bradford used to be a professor at the University of Dallas before he died, but he wrote a very good book called A Worthy of Company, and I would recommend that book to you if you'd like to read it, and I'm giving you lots of bits and pieces along the way. But in there, as we see this famous painting of the signing of the Constitution, he concluded as he went through and looked at the and established the bio biographies of the 55 men who signed the Constitution that at least 50 of those 55 men who signed the Constitution were church members who endorsed the Christian faith. I've gone back and looked at it. I said, I, you could probably get that up to almost 52 if you, you know, fudge a little bit. Now, Benjamin Franklin, okay, he's on the other side. But the point I'm making is, is that you are oftentimes hearing, even in the talks that are given about, you know, most of these individuals that were part of the Constitution and part of the Declaration, they were all Unitarian, they were secularists, they were deists. You know, some of them had some of the longest prayer meetings that you can possibly imagine, which I think is pretty amazing for Unitarian and deists, you know, but nevertheless, it shows you that really Christian ideas were very important in the founding of America. Which leads me to my simple conclusion. Can we be good without God? Well, I think you can be good without God, but do you even have the ability to define what good is? But more importantly, here's the question I have for you tonight. I think that anybody that looks at these facts with any kind of objectivity at all would have to say that Christianity was obviously important in the founding of this country and the framing of its government. Wouldn't you agree? I've just given you the tip of the iceberg, and there's much more. And if you would like to know more, I'm going to give you some places where you can find it in just a minute. So if Christianity was so important in the founding of this republic, why do so many today think that it is irrelevant to the maintenance of this republic? If it was important in its founding, do we not need Christian values and Christian ideas in the continuation of this republic? I think we know the answer. If you'd like to know some more about this, certainly let me mention our website, probe.org. Uh, people always said, well, if you could recommend one book, what would you recommend? Well, maybe Christian Ethics in Plain Language is my book that I would recommend because in that book we spend a fair amount of time, first of all, establishing a Christian foundation for ethics. And then I go through about two dozen different topics and issues 
abortion, euthanasia, genetic engineering, artificial reproduction, crime, punishment, capital punishment, drugs, premarital sex, extramarital sex, uh, homosexuality, drugs and environment and technology, but also whole chapters on things like government and media and certainly the issue of civil disobedience and try to give a biblical perspective. So we'll talk more about that tomorrow afternoon, but we also brought some of my other books. I do a program called Point of View, and so I have a book on the biblical point of view on Islam, a biblical point of view on homosexuality, a biblical point of view on intelligent design, a biblical point of view on spiritual warfare. I think we have those five books here. And those are really, the smaller books are an attempt to simply try to articulate what I think are the maybe 50 or 60 most asked questions on Islam or on intelligent design give you short answers and then pull quotes from the best people I've been able to interview over the last few decades and be able to read that in a short amount of time. So certainly those are some resources that I would highly recommend to you. But I'll leave you with that question. If indeed Christianity was so important in the founding of this country and the framing of the government, why today do we have so many people that believe that it is irrelevant? It is not. Thank you. Thank you for joining us here on Evidence and Answers Radio Broadcast. This concludes our study entitled One Nation Under God. If you found this broadcast to be a blessing, please consider partnering with us. Evidence and Answers relies on the generous donations from you, our listeners. Log on to our website at evidenceandanswers.org. We have so many resources available for you. For the opportunity to donate and keep us on the air, click on the Donate button of our homepage. Join us again next time, right here on the air or online, for more Evidence and Answers. <laughs>